0: Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you really quick about a new digital resource. So you've got a lot to balance in ministry. You're intentional about rest, prayer, and connection, but the digital world is screaming at you to stay plugged in 24-7. Meet Wise Phone. This is a new product, uh, pure and simple, for intentional people, No ads, no addictions, and no distractions. It's a phone for leaders who want to redeem their time and pursue authentic in-person relationships. I had the chance to talk to the creator of the Wise Phone, Chris Casper, Uh, this past Friday. You can go and check that out. It's our latest Maverick resource review. To learn more about Wise Phone, check out techless.com. That's T-E-C-H-L-E-S-S dot com.
1: You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding.
0: What's going on, everybody? This is Jeff. Welcome back to Youth Ministry Maverick. You're listening to episode 51, The Power of Story. Whether it's relationships, events in our lives, or other things that we see taking place before us, our lives pretty much track like a character in any story. And when we read scripture, when we think about the experiences of others, the power of story is something that we need to grasp and recognize as a key part of how God created everything and how everything plays out for us, in our lives. And to help me talk about that today is my esteemed guest, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. You might know her on Twitter as the Notorious KSP. Dr. Pryor is the Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Theological Seminary. She is the author of many books, including On Reading Well and Cultural Engagement, A Crash Course in Contemporary issues. She also has a new series of books that we talk about in our conversation. Uh, Her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, uh, Relevant, The Gospel Coalition, Religion News Service, and many other places. Dr. Pryor and I talk about how to engage this culture with the power of story, why reading Many things, including the classics, can actually help us read scripture and understand scripture more, and really how to move forward with engaging very important issues and people's stories and how they line up with our own experience. As youth workers, we are always encouraging students to see where God is at work around them. And we share that by sharing our stories and our testimonies. So this is pretty vital for us to know. So let's hop into this great conversation with Dr. Pryor. All right, Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's great to have you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So the power of story, which is our topic of conversation today, uh, has played a pivotal role in helping me understand several elements of my life, including relationships, traumas, my ministry path, as well as my grasp of scripture and theology. Uh, My favorite teacher in high school actually was my junior year English teacher, and she provided a substantial reset on how I understand the elements of story in my life. And there is a series of books you've been writing called A Guide to Reading and Reflecting, where you provide insight on how to read classic works as a Christian. Two of them just released a few weeks ago, which we'll certainly make a plug for here at the end. Uh, But that question you have in the book description is striking. Do you know how to read them as a Christian? Uh, So, Dr. Pryor, my first question is, how can reading classic works and other literature people might dismiss as secular, Improve our view of Scripture and even help us understand how God is at work in our lives.
1: Well, that is the question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Let's let's dive right in. Um, Of course, people Christians are people of the Word, right we We are a Bible centered people, and the Bible is a a written word, um, a delivered word from God. And so, of all people in all creation, it is uh, Christian believers who should um, understand and recognize the the power of, of words and language and want to have facility and skill in language. Um, obviously, you know, I think most of us understand that when it comes to the Bible. Um, you know, we, we know that we should read the Bible thoroughly, read it well, reread it, understand it. And actually, doing practicing those same skills with other well-crafted works of literature, because the Bible it is the Word of God, but it's also a very well-crafted work of literature. Um, When we apply those same skills to other works of literature, it's really—I mean—the an an analogy uh, of physical exercise is helpful here, because if you're now I don't do sports, but if you're a basketball player and you run or lift weights that actually helps you play basketball or so i'm told right you know so so the same when we apply all any skills uh develop any skills about language and literacy and reading that feeds into our ability to understand the bible It's, it's really just exercising the same skills and then beyond that um Having an ability with language um and words actually helps us to be better communicators when whether we are communicating the word um in church or we are communicating the gospel to our neighbors um it's all about language and the words, and so it's just it's just something that you know we are we are distinct as a people of the word uh and so reading classic literature helps us to improve those skills,
0: yeah. I love that. Yeah. One of uh the people on our preaching team here at our church, he's also a high school English teacher. And so whenever he preaches, he reminds everyone of that. He likes to, <laughs> and he approaches it as okay, I'm approaching this as a story. Who are the characters, what's the setting, where what are the themes, you know, what's the context. And um, I think one thing that has emerged in the last 10, 15 years, maybe, um, is the prominence of, but then I feel also a very high misconception of narrative theology, right? When people hear that, they think, oh, that's twisting the gospel. That's not really what it's supposed to be. And there are people who I've heard of or friends have told me about who will get upset and think that it's a danger and even maybe leave churches um, over that. And so, um, what would your response be to people who are looking at the power of narrative and story, which the Bible is a meta narrative, right? It's mm-hmm. this arc of history of God revealing himself. But yet, people look at that and they think, I think that's dangerous. How would you reply to people mm-hmm. who have those concerns?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things I would say. I, I, first of all, I'd point out the irony that what we've come to call postmodernism, which is something, you know, many Christians are, are you know, rightly concerned about. But postmodernism's simplest definition is a rejection of all meta narratives. Mm. So if we fail to understand the Bible as you you just described it as a meta narrative, we're actually kind of playing into the the worst aspects of postmodernism. So the Bible is a meta narrative. It is the greatest, truest story ever told, Uh, and that doesn't mean that we abandon, you know, systematic theology and doctrine. It's really a matter of both. Um, It's a matter of balancing the two. So the Bible is, um, it's a story that begins with basically once upon a time, right, in the beginning. It's another way of saying that, and it ends, as all good stories do, with a wedding, um and so in between there are all of these you know stories within the stories but also me- much much doctrine much teaching um but god unfolded his himself to us through a narrative we can't deny that he and again going back he he used words he used language and a narrative is simply a, a work of 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 art, a creation. um, In this case, the Bible is God's creation that unfolds through time. And we as human beings were created by God in this earthly realm to exist in time. We Mm -hmm. aren't in eternity yet. And so narrative really just replicates Our human condition on this earth, as we live from day to day, from year to year, our lives unfolding in time in the same way that a story unfolds in time, word by word, sentence by sentence. And so really to understand the way narration works and narrative is to understand how the Bible works and also how our lives On this earth work as we, you know, work our way toward uh, reconciliation and ultimately sanctification and consummation with our creator.
0: Yeah, well said. Um, I think a lot of those themes, which we'll touch on here um, in a little bit, especially reconciliation and also just diving into that idea of the narrative, you know, um, I think our culture has a lot that we're dealing with. Polarization is a big thing, which we'll also touch Mm -hmm. on. Um, But um, a little while ago, um, I had very very um, unique honor, probably I'll never have it again, um, I got to have a very small uh, house party and discussion and listen to a lecture from Alistair McGrath, the theologian. And um, I got to ask him uh, at the end of the party uh, because he's written several books on apologetics and his latest one, I think it's still his latest one, but at that time, certainly it was new was on narrative it was narrative apologetics and i said i love that i told him a little bit about what i do i'm like can you tell me why you chose to do it from the narrative perspective and he said yes uh the power of story right um when you share your faith with others but you talk about god revealing and showing you your own story and where he showed up and your experiences, you can show someone that your story can be part of their story as well. And Mm -hmm. it's not just facts and Greek logic. And I dismiss your premise, right? You're talking about experience, which if you just go experience only, right, you can twist and, and distort things. But when you combine it and bring it together and really show how it's impacted you and your desire to keep learning and seeing where God is at work, um, I just loved that. And that has stuck with me. Um, And so when I've been able to follow you um, and other people on Twitter or online that I respect and just learning to ask better questions and looking where God is at work in my story, but where he's been at work in the stories of others, it helps me a lot to really have an understanding. And sometimes I feel ashamed that I've been ignorant of um, experiences and stories and things that when I look at them and read them like, Oh, that makes sense, but I never gave them credit or time or consideration before. And so really, um, you know, in this uh, era where truth seems to be a slippery slope and it's kind of relative, you know, it's good really to have faces and names and experiences because that's what we see in Scripture. Right. And so I really loved that approach that, that he, he, he uh, took. Um, as you've understood literature and story more and more over your own teaching career. Um, How have you appreciated literature and what God has done with stories in our own lives a little more?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, I grew up in the church and um, accepted Christ at a very young age. So that, that was my world. Um, But I also loved reading stories. I just was a voracious reader from a young age all the way, you know, my, my whole life. And I actually just, you know, God was. I just felt like I learned more about God's um, design and and the order of the universe and reality through reading these stories. Uh, in many ways, than than what I learned in, in church and Sunday school. I learned the doctrine there, but I learned the application in these stories. I, you know, I I have not. Lived a, a very exciting life. I grew up in a rural area. Um, didn't experience much, but through these stories, I could see different, you know, times in history, experience the the world through other people's eyes and understand their perspective. Um, and so, I was exposed to so many situations and dilemmas and problems. And it's you know, it's really kind of a a a, a, a testing ground for ideas that literature has. And um, one of the the works that Actually, just really changed my life more than any other, because it changed my thinking was a novel I read as a sophomore in college, um Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. And the story, it's you know, it's a wonderful story, but what it's also doing is it's challenging romanticism as a worldview. And until I read that, I didn't know, I didn't realize that I had this, you know, unbiblical worldview of romanticism, which is actually, you know, um, that's a whole other topic, but I'll, I'll just give a, a plug for Carl Truman's uh, recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where he traces this history of how we've come to where we are with our modern selves and, and it's their lack of truth that begins in romanticism. Um yeah, you know, the with a capital R, the the literary and philosophical movement, and so just a book like that just was able to teach me, help me to understand biblical truth so powerfully. Hmm. So that that's the role that literature formally has had in my life, but also, um, you know, something that that you just alluded to earlier, just it's also built in me this up. Uh, ability to to realize that there are different perspectives that that those some perspectives are trustworthy some are not but they're all at play as we're as we're even interpreting our own daily experiences we're actually narrating them um, as we as we go through an ordinary day or we ask you know a loved one uh when they get home at the end of the day they narrate uh their experiences to us and they do it they're already interpreting those experiences Mm. um so from just kind of the lofty heights of of worldly philosophies to just everyday kinds of narrations and interpretations that we engage in, um, we're just steeped in stories,
0: yeah, yeah um, those those themes and those stories and helping us be more aware of them and then also there's how they stick with us you know I love that we come home and we narrate and interpret right that's really bringing that literary focus um, one of my favorite books in high school was one that people seemingly hear and they're like, oh, I didn't like that book. And it was Scarlet Letter. And it might seem a little brimstone, but um, (laughs) I love it because the shame, the weight, the burden, the not knowing how to handle it, the public scorn, right? as someone who works with teenagers and invests in the next generation and someone who wants to help other youth workers do that as well, that book and those themes to me are so important because some of those themes, no matter the age, really, um, if it was 50 years ago, 10 years ago, and and all in between a lot of those elements are in teenagers already, but then Mm -hmm. you add in the spiritual burden of, sin. And then you also look at status. And now, of course, you have our online era, social media mm-hmm. filtered. You post whatever you want and make your life look good. You can create your own persona, right? It's more than just airbrushed covers of magazines. It's a completely new identity that you can have. Um, and I love how... And, and and for me, when I thought about this, this conversation in classic works, that one, that book has always stuck with me as one that I think is very powerful for what I do now. And it's someone that I can hearken back to and think, yeah, this is relevant. This has a lot of weight to it and it's still a real issue. And we need the spirit. We need guidance. We need grace for ourselves and we need it to be able to dispense to others.
1: Well, I'm so encouraged to hear you say that. I don't know if you realize that, that, the Scarlet Letter will be um, one of the books, the last books I do in my classics. Oh, series. great! <laughs> yeah, so great. I'll be I'll be working on that this summer, and what will release next year. But you're absolutely right that the that what makes classic works of literature classic um, is that they speak to universal human experiences and the human condition, regardless of their you know rootedness in some weird. Puritan early American time far away that, that doesn't matter. Um, and I think this book in particular is one that, as you described it, that, that, you know, it has even more resonance today than it might've even 10 years ago because of, because of social media, um, and the kind of shame, uh, and the, the, and guilt that come with that as, and young people experience that so much. Um, I think the scarlet letter is, is a work that has even more to speak to us today. So, but, but all of the great works do if we just look for them.
0: Yeah. Lately it might feel like Lord of the flies, but
1: uh, no. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, no, that, that, that book has definitely stuck with me. Um, well, I mentioned it earlier. Um, our polarized culture. Uh, one of the many negative effects caused from that, I think, is the now relative definition of truth. A person of any creed, belief, or persuasion can find several quote-unquote facts mm. online that support their perspective. Um, I think the power of story has the ability to cut through that, uh, kind of as I mentioned um, with my interaction with Dr. McGrath and narrative and, and your story can influence their story. But stories of hardship and anguish are constantly dismissed by people, including myself, like I said earlier, uh, for a myriad of reasons. It could just be you don't know about them. It could be politics, social status, religious convictions, etc. Philippians 4.13 is certainly a favorite verse for many Christians, especially here in America. Now, whether they understand the proper context is a different conversation. Uh, But we know that through the Spirit, we can come together in many ways. However, if we can't or refuse to believe the stories of our neighbors, even our brothers and sisters in Christ. It seems like any semblance of unity beyond being in the same room in a sanctuary and all claiming to love and follow Jesus, um, anything other than that, to me, kind of seems difficult, if not impossible. And that has been on my mind uh, consistently and constantly uh, for these upcoming generations of students. So, Dr. Pryor, do you think the first step of coming together over issues like things that you've been talking about in in recent years, racism, political discourse, um, the Me Too movement, sexual abuse in society and, and the church, do you think coming together over those has to start with listening and believing one another's stories?
1: I I I don't know where else we could start. It, it has to be there. Um, as you said, we live in an age where there are we're swimming and drowning in facts, and we can find any article or fact or poll or survey or chart to support pretty much anything that we want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of what it means to to be in a in a late modern fragmented kind of of culture. Um, it's almost like being in the dark ages again, what, except instead of having a lack of information. We have so much information that we can pick and choose, or or we're so overwhelmed that we just don't even want to bother picking and choosing, which is why, you know, part of being like a post-truth culture, which is a word that came up a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so regardless, you know, it doesn't matter what facts we have, facts aren't valuable until they mean something. Um and so we are the ones we are meaning-making creatures. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And mm. so so that's even why we go out and look for the facts to support what we believe, right? Because we 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 assume those facts will mean what we want them to mean. And so um meaning is everything, interpreting those facts, understanding what they mean um in context. And so that's why people's stories actually provide the context for the facts um, and, and provide, provide even more facts because their experiences are part of, you know, uh, of the data field, if you want to use that term. Um, and we could never get enough facts to, to fill in everything. You know, I think of that old parable of, of the, the blind men standing around an elephant in each, has a grasp of a different part of the elephant, right? And so that part of the elephant feels like something different to each person. And they're going to describe, you know, the person who has hold of the tail is going to describe the elephant one way. And the one who has the trunk will describe it another way. Well, that really is a great metaphor for our human condition and experience. And it's only by putting all of those experiences together um, so that we can weigh them against capital t truth um that any of the facts can can make any any difference um and our experiences are so different and i think that's people do have a hard time grasping that because for so long human human beings lived in relatively small communities they didn't hear about other people living yeah. far away mm-hmm. and so everything was just what you were experiencing in your community and now we have this digital age where we can know about other people's experiences but that doesn't mean we accept them we're still sort of weighing and measuring everything against our own experience we haven't learned how to live in the same time and space um with other people uh, and to know that their experiences are, are just as real as ours are. And so, 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 listening, um, is, 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 is essential to kind of moving beyond this massive data dump that we live in, in this age, in this digital age.
0: Yeah. Listening, listening. Um, you know, when, when we claim or, or people claim you're not listening to me, it's good to think about, are you listening to them? Um mm. and because yeah, that what you just said, that that data dump, you know, I've heard uh and trying to think about technology and students especially, and you know, uh we have an eighteen month old an eighteen month old at home and we're trying to give them like no screen time except like FaceTime with grandma and grandpa, you know. Um, and how uh I, our brains aren't meant to handle this much change or information mm. this quickly. Mm-hmm. Um and You almost wonder if people want to extrapolate that out into we weren't meant to know about everybody's experience at once, which I guess has some merit, but also, you know, in the kingdom of heaven mindset, listening and humility has to come first. And that's how we just, that's how we should understand anything, any story, even if a story from someone in our community fits our presuppositions and our own perspective. We still need to listen because you know it's a lack of humility that makes us think we don't mm-hmm. have to listen
1: or you know it's a lack of humility to think that our experience is the measure of everyone else's yeah. um and it's it's ironic that people you know people um bible centered people who believe in truth with a capital T um like me that 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 we we fall so prey to this this mistake of thinking you know, it's truly subjective for me to think that my experience is the measure of someone else's, whether it's true or not, that really is subjectivism. And so uh, we fall into that when we make our own experience, the measure of someone else's. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's fresh on my mind and I don't want to rehash it a lot, but I recently just uh, preached about capital T truth. So uh, our, our church is going through a series on Job. Mm -hmm. And I, and I handled the the first interaction of Job's friends and how they just approached his suffering with arrogance and rebuke mm-hmm. and uh, the prosperity approach of, you know, you, you brought this upon yourself. Why would God mm-hmm. punish the righteous? And I talked about how can we, you know, in, in John one, Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. And if that's our model, how can we do that? And, you know, as people in time, as you mentioned earlier, we're, we're limited. And so mm-hmm. basically, Um, we have a big scale on like a tight wire and we try and balance grace and truth, right? And then we look at our example and Jesus has no tight wire. He has no scale. He is full of both Mm -hmm. simultaneously all the time. So even our best attempt and our best living can't match what he does. And so capital T truth is the fullness of God, which means you can't separate grace from truth. Yes, you, you can have facts without grace, but to have capital T truth, you need to acknowledge the fullness of God and that's being able to have grace and truth. And we won't be able to understand simultaneous character dispensing until we're, we're, <laughs> we're with God, you know? And, um, and so it's, it's, it's really hard for us to do that. We, we need grace. And so to turn around and show it to others is possible, but also very difficult. And um, yeah, we need to be able to listen because when we, have grace and we have faith leading us and not knowledge, a natural byproduct of having faith dependence has to be humility, right? And so um yeah, I that's that's one thing that I think this next generation was seeing the online vitriol that we have and a lack of both. I just read a Barna study last night or or the day before about how there are a high percentage amount of thirteen to, to twenty one year olds who like having grace and what is truth, both of those are like up in the air.
1: Mm.
0: It was like ninety-one percent of that age group feels like I have no problem, and it's totally fine me being able to say I disagree with what you think, and then to be able to say that you know truth and, and moral change over time, it's like sixty-five percent feel that way. Um, and so, what is truth, and why do I need <laughs> grace? I did have my quote-unquote facts and there it is. And you're either with me or you're against me. And there's our polarized cliffs and throwing rocks at each other. Right. And so I do have one final kind of area of questions or one question for you. Dr. Pryor has your advice to students regarding literature and culture changed over the years. You've been teaching for a while. You've um, seen a lot happen in society. You've been in higher education where there's been concentrations of, we need to make sure and teach this and have these teaching outlines. Um, has it changed over the years? And if so, how has it changed to what you impress on your current students?
1: Hmm. You know, it really has changed. Um, and part of that, I think, is because students and culture have changed some. But also, maybe I'm just getting wiser and understanding the the deeper need in students. Uh, so the thing that I've noticed the most, and this is really part a big part of the uh, what prompted me to write on Reading Well, um, is that... Uh, students and people read a lot but they really they really don't read they read so badly so uh, so just for example i will often um find in just reading a short passage like a paragraph from a work of literature or an essay that students don't know the literal meaning at all because they've jumped to some interpretation that is not at all rooted in the text mm-hmm. um and we see this on Twitter all the time and, and Facebook where, where something is just, you know, one word is, is mistaken and the entire, you know, the entire meaning of, of something that's posted is is misunderstood because people are just not reading carefully and, and um, we're, we skim. Uh, and I've found that, uh, that even just both in the classroom and on social media, if I share an article, I've had numerous uh, examples of asking people to locate the thesis of a short article and they cannot, they literally cannot locate it. They don't know what the argument is. So they'll latch onto a word or a phrase or an example and run away with that without understanding how it's connected to the main argument because they haven't identified the main argument. Mm. So you know that that sounds like a very you know like oh this is just a classroom problem it, it really isn't i this this is a this is a problem for the church and the culture and our world because if we don't even understand the point of what someone is saying as we're listening and we get carried away with some word or some image or some idea of our own that we're you know that we're caught up in then we really aren't even we don't even know what an article is saying, what a person is saying, what the Bible is saying. Um, And I think that comes from a, from a number of things, but just this digital age that we're in where everything is fast and, and pop boxes are popping up on our screens. Um, It's very hard to hold our attention long enough to even just follow a short argument um, or the logic of it. Um, And so I think, I think that's sort of how we've ended up with QAnon and conspiracy (sighs) theories. I mean, to make a quick leap, um, it's just we just don't know how to follow an argument. And we really, um, you know, going back to being people of the word, I mean, um, in the beginning was the word. The word was what was with God. The word was God. And we know that word is Logos. Uh, which means, among other things, it means logic. It means coherence. It means you know the rationality that holds the universe together. We really need to get rooted back into that logos, that word, capital W, and all of the words around us, and because they they carry meaning. Um, and if we don't understand the meaning, then we are just as postmodern as the person who thinks we can make our own truth.
0: Yeah. Well said. Yeah, that last statement for sure. Uh, it's. And that's what humility should lead to. It should lead to us looking in the mirror and being able to say, am I holding everyone? Am I holding myself to the same standards I hold yeah. to everyone yeah. else? Um, I was able to have Dr. Daryl Bach on a while back talking about his, his newer book on how to engage culture. And, and he said, you know, one of the big dangers about modern tribalism is that um, we let ourselves get away with what we won't let others get away with and then we defend it. And that's indefensible is, is what he said. And, Mm -hmm. um, it leads to the complete inability to engage in Matthew 18, reconciliation. Um, you know, first Corinthians, we are messengers, we are ministers of reconciliation. And if, if that's is, if that is what we are called to be and do as the church, then, listening, asking questions, humility has to be at the center of that, right? and yet, because right. our take whatever general statement or accusation you want um, of our freedoms being taken away or our rights being infringed upon, which there are some some groups of people whose rights have been and still are being infringed upon it's probably not the groups that we want to think, but it's true, and um, we have to be able to Listen, and I know that perfect unity won't be possible this side of heaven. But man, the American church, especially, has—I feel like—dug itself quite a hole, or let holes be dug around Mm -hmm. it. And that's been a failure of discipleship on our part. And you know, I was talking about that with my students um, earlier about how was 2020 affected you. Um, What have you noticed about it? And here's what church leaders have seen: is all of these things happening in our culture or American Christian culture is because we really haven't done a great job discipling and our churches haven't turned out disciples who can think well, can lead with humility above anything else, above any proof, above any evidence, whatever, you know. And that's where I think we have to start and really lead with to be like that guy we're supposed to follow, Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Dr. Parr, this has been. An honor. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, A few weeks ago, at the beginning of March, you had two of those books in your series drop. So, can you tell us what those books are and also tell us where people can follow your ongoing work and dialogue online?
1: Sure. The um, two latest books in my series of cl- edited classics are Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, one of my personal favorites that everyone should read. It's not just a love story, so the guys should read it as well. And Frankenstein, which if you've not read, is nothing like any of the pop culture or film versions of it. A Very, very deep philosophical work that asks a lot of questions that Christians should be interested in. Uh, and then th- they, those two volumes follow um, last year's, which are, yeah. <laughs> Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And what I'm doing with these books is writing introductions um, for those who've never read the books or those who already love them with no spoilers in the introductions, but preparing readers to know what to look for and what, you know, what the background of the work is. And then lots of discussion questions. So the books are great for just personal reflection. It's like being in a classroom with me. Um, I'm asking the same questions that I would be leading in a classroom discussion. Discussion And you can use those on your own or ha- use it for a book club. Um, and so each volume includes the full text of the of the work, along with my guidance along the way.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So what you're telling me is if I read Frankenstein, I'm not going to see Abbott and Costello in there anywhere is what you're saying. Nowhere. Yeah.
1: Nowhere. Nope.
0: <laughs> All of my younger millennial and older Gen Z <laughs> listeners are like, what is he talking about? Who is that? <laughs> um, well, Dr. Pryor, again, this has been an honor. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'll be praying for you and your ongoing ministry and teaching okay. and helping shape um, the future generations of believers. So thank you again so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Pryor for joining me on the podcast In the show notes, you will find links to her website and the links to go buy her latest books. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it. And be sure to follow us on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find those social media handles and more at our website, youthministrymaverick.com. There you will also find some guest bios a comprehensive list of all of our episodes and show notes, some ministry partners to help you in your own ministry, an online store to support the podcast, published articles by me, and more. So be sure to visit our website for those things. Also, we really love when people give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Apple is the biggest podcast streamer, And it really helps boost our visibility when people give us a good review. So if you go there and give us a review, not just a rating, but a review, take a screenshot of it before you hit submit and send it to me. And as a thank you, I will send you a card with some merchandise that you can't buy on our online store. So be sure to do that. Well, that's all for now. So until next time, thanks again for listening. Adios.